like Kubi and the Bl- uh, Blizzards, I'll say, sound like Joe Cocker if he didn't if he decided one day he'd been turned down too many times and decided I'm not going to try and get laid anymore. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of the Temple of Bleh. I think this is episode six. Am I right? Uh, Yeah. I've stopped counting after the one month anniversary or whatever we called it. That's as far as we expected it to go. So now everything has to come. (laughs) I only find out when I've uploaded the episode and I find the episodes before and I'm like, all right, this must be episode number. Anyway, it's it's a weekly metal news roundup show as well as some other rabbit holes we like to jump down. I know, uh, dear God, have we got a rabbit hole tonight? <laughs> it's going to be great. Anyway, I'm Jim, and this is my co-host Raw. Right, um, but uh, we'll we'll start as we always start. So just a roundup of things we have found interesting. So it's usually heavily biased towards bands I already like, and this week, yeah, this week it's pretty much biased towards bands that I already like. So uh, Raging Speed on have a new album coming out at some point. Yes, yes. Did you listen um, to Raging Speed's on's last album? No, but I was actually watching Bees' stream, and he does a stream every yeah. yeah every few days, really. But on on Saturday or Sunday, he does like a new music roundup, and uh, every new song he puts on, it's like a new music jukebox. Yeah. Um, he puts a poll out with like a rating system, yeah, yeah. so he can get a vibe for what everyone's feeling about the songs on like the first hearing. Mm. And uh, Raging Speedhard was the only one for the past like two weeks that was world class. Everyone's like, yeah, this is fucking uh, meant. Yeah, yeah, because the album they brought out a couple of years back. It was still Raging Speed on, but it was more stone and doomy Raging Speed on, whereas before it was just like, I don't know, sort of like thrashy, thrashy noise, but that sort of like British early 2000s. Oh, look at us, we've got detuned guitars, but you know, we're not, but you know, we're not going to funny about with them. We're actually going to play some fucking riffs and not you know in a DJ. You know, I didn't know about Raging Speed on, but the sideband of Raging Speed on is Viking Skull. Yes, Jim. So your comment about the kind of the stoner element, maybe there's instead of it being a side project, it's just now this matured into an amalgamation of well, we just like to do this. Yeah, we like to do all the things as opposed to just like compartmentalizing one or the other. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I don't know. But the last album was fucking really good, even though it was like massive departure, but not really from what they from what they did back in the day. And. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Once again, J- Jocko, if you want to do us some plagiarizing, please don't. Um, uh, yeah, where was that? Uh, speed on. Yeah, so that's that's out. So I'm I'm quite looking forward to that because I actually I've seen them live when they were supporting Ramstein on the Mutter tour. They were the fucking first band, Ramstein American. Yeah, Red and Speed on American Head Charge and them fucking Ramstein. What a gig that was. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I could have gone to see them at um, Amherst a couple of years back. I sat near them while they were watching England get fucking spanked in the rugby. Uh, but then I got too drunk and didn't go to see Red and Speed on. So sorry, lads. I will come and see you at some point. Like mm-hmm. you give a fuck. <laughs> the track itself is shit up. Is it? All right, cool. Well, I haven't heard it. I just know there's a new album out that's so, uh, yeah, on it with the news I've been this week. Okay. Uh, Fear Factory is done. Oh, yeah. Uh, is this the same Fear Factory news as I've got? The one way... I think there's going to be some crossover, but it's all it's all fucking band politics, isn't it, at the minute? Oh, is it? I don't, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, so, so all, from what I'm aware of, right? So they recorded an album in 2017 with Nuclear Blast. Yes. That album's recorded. Yes. But now I think there's been some drummer issues or something like that, which has caused Dino to um, 
want to re-record and remaster and do some stuff basically extend the the whole the whole life cycle of this album being made yeah so yeah. two things have happened one is it clay burton what's his name oh i fucking am i am i talking about nighthawk or whatever his fucking name is hawkeye I- is his name Clay fucking Burton? Anyway, anyway, so um, that he, he's fucked off. He's now fucked up. He recorded the vocals in 2017. It's just as well I've forgotten his name because I think he's been the most antagonistic in this fucking shit show. So he's fucked off and he's gone, well, I just recorded this album in 2017 and that's it. Um, but Obviously, Nuclear Blast aren't paying for this extra time they're spending on the album. So Dino has been crowdfunding the rest of it. Right, okay. So, so fucking Hawkeye is uh, coming out of the woodwork <laughs> and saying, oh, yeah, this isn't anything to do with the album. You're crowdfunding uh, Dino's legal issues. Yeah, oh, because oh, my news is going to be the crowdfunding the album. This is the thing. Yeah, but Dino's come out oh. and said, you know, fucking Hawkeye's chatting shit. And... Right. and you're funding the album there. Don't worry about that. Yeah. But what no one has said is it's fucking done and I'm sick of Fear Factory. Except mm. Hawkeye. I don't know. Hawkeye. He's, he's called Hawkeye forever now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Love it. I'm not even, even going to excuse myself. It's uh, fine. So, it's all over board. So there's bad shit going on in the Fear Factory camp. Um... As, as an aside, because we haven't talked about the gym in the opening, uh, D Manufacture is a badass gym album. Mm. Yeah, the fucking, yeah. Put, put on a bit of D Manufacture in the gym. Good fucking times. Yeah, man. Good fucking times. Still mourning the loss of my gym. Oh, yeah, shit, mate. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's crap. But but you're building a goddamn home gym. Yeah, man. I'm actually, I might even tweet Anarcho and ask him if they will airdrop a squat rack. Yeah. Just see what they do. <laughs> Just halts fire in his chopper. Go! <laughs> what do they live uh, in Britain? So you might be able to run your one round in a van. I think, I think a lot of them live in Britain now. I think a lot uh, of them. It's, one of, it's um, it's the fucking guitarist in the um, ah, oh, Booniat with a beard. What fucking whatever he's called. It's not Inzo de Barracuda. There's three of the bastards now, aren't there? Three fucking guitarists. Yeah, and two bass yeah. players for the goddamn ballsy sound. It's not um, Odin Krieg troll because he's Californian as fuck because he, he was so pissed when we saw him he just kept on dropping the Arnie accent because he was fucking hammered. <laughs> and then he took a chunk out of my hand with his spiky wristband when he gave me a fucking handshake. It was brilliant. So my favourite one was when we saw him and we were approaching the venue and we saw him... Um, he, was, he, was get, he was getting out of his van. Looking and really then confused. He, he, he was confused as ass. He was like, hey guys, do you know where to get to the... And he saw us with all camo on. And just goes, look at you three ballsy heroes <laughs> trying to get into the venue like I. <laughs> and it was just him dropping down the gate going, come on, I'm here, let me in. <laughs> <laughs> loved it, man. Fucking anyway, RIP Fear Factory. Yeah, shit, I like Fear Factory. Yeah, I mean, when they came back to do, when they had the reunion stuff, I think it was what, like sort of late 2000, maybe 2008, 2009, and they just got Gene Oglin on drums and... yeah any old fucker for um, on bass. I think it was, everyone was kind of enjoying it, but I think they've just been going through the motions since then, haven't they, in terms of yeah. getting back onto the release cycle, do the odd festival run, yeah. same old, same old. Jim, not, I've, not, I've not heard anything remarkable, is my point. Yeah, it's that classic question again, Jim. 
Have we seen Fear Factory at a festival? Bloodstock, we did. Bloodstock 2009, did, I'm sure of it. Yes, that was it. And I'm actually pretty that sure they played 2006 Wacken as well. Yes. But that was prior to the reunion. Yeah. So I think it might have been... I can't remember who wasn't in the band, either Hawkeye or Fatino. Yeah. Okay, cool. So um, I may have seen Fear Factory twice and vaguely remember one of them. So, yeah, that's cool. That's good, isn't it? Yeah, that's good, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, let's get some more new hours. All right, news about bands who are actually touring. Skindred UK tour next year. Nice one. End of next year. Go see Skindred live. If you haven't seen Skindred live, go fucking do it. If you're put off by, you know, ooh, does reggae work with metal? Yes. Yes, go see it. <laughs> go fucking see it. Go see it, get your shirt off, do the Newport helicopter, sit there and howl at how funny Benji is and be prepared to cry when he tells his tale and does one song. It Seriously, it, it, it choked me up and I'm not usually an emotional person with shit like that. But does it, that, did, did his gym close down as well? No, no, it's, 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 a, it's worse than that, but only slightly worse than that. But yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I won't spoil it for anyone because I think you need to hear it to get the full impact. But you know, afterwards, I was like, I was like, oh shit, Benji, I just, I just, I, I just came for a good, good, good time, man, and I get why you've laid this on me. But fuck, dude, fuck. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, it's no. Seriously, Skindred, seen him about four, five times now. Um, yeah. Always at festivals and support slots, um, which, which is a topic for at some point. Remind me of that one. So yeah. I think, I think we need to do a topic on bands you've seen but haven't actually paid to see them, but you've seen them multiple right. times. Yeah, yeah. that's unless a skin dreader one of them. But yeah, every time, fucking love it. Every time I see them at a festival, it's like, who we seen? Fucking skin dread. So next year, go, it'll be a right laugh. Cool, cool. Um, Ramsteiner in the studio. Ooh. Now, here's my question. Is it okay to not give a fuck? Hmm, in what way? Because the last album was a bit eh. Oh, it's because every time I hear the fucking dum dum dum, like the reverby, yeah, I'm always like, I just sigh and go to the bar. I've, I've never given a fuck about Rammstein. I think it's it's a good laugh. Yeah. It's a good laugh. The dwarf thing were great. Yeah. Um, okay. And then the woman in the fat suits is a good laugh. Yeah. Do, but do. I just can't, I'm not, I'm not called to action whenever I am. Yeah. Uh, have, have I dragged you up to do the Doohast Macarena? No. Because the Macarena perfectly fits to Doohast. After that drum bit, they're... Try it. Try it. Go try the Doohast Macarena. Uh, but yeah, don't um, say that shit around my dad. Otherwise, he will fucking batter you. All right. <laughs> I'll just take him out for another pint, mate. That'll show him. <laughs> yeah, that's a, we'll get him so wasted that he has to have a run when he gets home to throw up so he can sleep. True, <laughs> uh, yeah. Never, they've never, they've never, I've never seen him. Yeah. And I was impressed, but I think it's like, oh, he jacks up a man on stage, uh, like he jacks up a dildo. It's like, all oh, right, it's baby's first fucking, yeah. it's baby's first controversial gig it back is in two thousand. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but um, Lindemann's first solo album, genius. Is it? Oh, See, this is, this is the devil's advocate I was hoping for. I was hoping you'd be able to tell me why everything's actually really good, and I should give him the time of day, Lindemann... and that I shouldn't like be, just be satisfied with me thinking that they're a nostalgia act when maybe they're not, and I'm not seeing something. Yeah, uh, uh, the last album, like um, Deutschland and Radio, the songs are a bit like, eh. They've, they've lost a bit of their power, but Lindemann's, Lindemann's first album, I remember sat down with the second one because the first album is basically, it's all in English, which is really weird, so you can like 
because the, the appeal with Ramstein is like the early stuff, fucking fantastic riffs, and you don't know what he's saying, but you like how he's saying it, so you're proper mm. into it. Whereas his solo stuff, it's kind of Ramstein because it's one of the guitarists, but it is more just him um, doing his thing. But he's singing in English, so it's because he doesn't talk live on stage, he just says thank you at the end of it and stuff. So he's, yeah. he probably speaks, yeah, he, from the album, he obviously writes in good English, but he chooses not to say it. Cool, that's absolutely fine. But um, Till Lindemann's first solo album is, I like to believe it is just Till Lindemann's sexual fantasies put to music. <laughs> cool. So it's all about fucking lady boys and, you know, the song Praise a Bart, where it's like him going, uh, I've I've got too many kids, so I'll fuck blokes instead because I don't like wearing condoms. <laughs> <laughs> so I just feel as though it's all Till Lindemann's sexual fantasies, and it'd be one of them where if Till Lindemann came up to you, like, hello, I'm Till, I like to fuck the women, and I like to fuck the men. You'd be like, of course you do, Till. We, we never had a doubt that that's, that's what you did, mate. Cool. See, now I'm intrigued because it sounds like he's wanted to say this stuff for a long time, but obviously he's had some sort of pressure from, you know, the community spirit that is having a band with, like, ten people in it. So, actually, you know what? Let's not write songs about fucking ladyboys and then aborting kids. You can do that on your own time, mate. And now he's like, I have the time now. I will do it. I was the time that I would do it. Uh, but yeah, I think it's just Till Lindemann going, here are my sexual fantasies. Here I'm... it is. Fuck you if you don't like them. And have some you know what, mate? I'm going right. to do this backwards. I'm going to do um, Till Lindemann's solo album first, and then I'll yes. listen to Ramstein. Um, all the shit that I don't hear in the clubs, I'll listen to all that stuff. And oh, I'll yeah. actually make an effort. <clears throat> yeah, no, no, make an effort. Start with Ramstein. I would recommend you start from... Ooh, now, I'm going to be controversial with this one. You start from, oh yeah, start from. I'm going to bring up the list of albums so I know what um, oh. what order I'm going to tell you to listen to them in now. All right, let's have a look at this because the ones that I really really like. Okay, they're sort of like, I think right. Yeah, what you want to do is you want to listen to. Shit, they fucking only had a bit of a break between them albums. Okay, interesting. Right, um, listen to Zengzuk first, so that's the mm-hmm. second album, then Mutter, then Rise Riser, and then I would say listen to Herzeld, which is their first album, and then you can do Rosenra and Lieber ist für alle da, and then the um, and then the newest one, yeah, or the one that they're going to be releasing, I don't know. No, the one that they released, it's untitled, it's called, so, that's yeah. That's good. But yeah, Zengzuk... Herzl's the one where it's kind of very, very... That's like the black metal, no production. We've recorded this on the tape on a bin, but it's still there. Zengzut's the one where it's sort of like going, ah, this is like worthy to be put out in the public, and Mutter's the one that blows it out of the park. The thing that does intrigue me about Rammstein is their origin story, which was... Because um, it was in East Germany. Yes. They had to perform in front of, like, a Soviet sort of co- yes. like committee of... Committee of um, committee of metalheads, bastards. Yeah, yeah, who deemed it suitable for the masses? Pretty much the Ministry and, of uh, and they went nine or yet. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Till Lindemann, very interesting guy as well. Uh, German Olympic swimmer. Fuck off. Yep, yep. East German Olympic swimmer, Olympic grade. I don't know if he qualified for the team or whatever, but Olympic level swimmer. And qualified pyrotechnician, which is why they can do all the shit they can, because like, oh, you need a qualified pyrotechnician to do this. Is like, yeah, you could be a qualified pyrotechnician. Ted Nugent, Bruce Dickinson, yes. Uh, yes. Till Lindemann. You've got Lancey and Air covered. 
Oh my fucking god! Metal Army. Oh my f- oh, f- yeah, Ted, Ted Nugent's Metal Army. Sign me the fuck up. <laughs> um, over to you. Unless you have more to say on Ramstein. Um, I've got I've got a list now. I've got I've got something to be doing. I think I've said quite enough on Ramstein. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay, then uh, King Para have a new track out. I know we mentioned King Para last week on that yep. 99 bottles of beer for dogs tune. <laughs> but, uh, King Para have a new track. I haven't listened to it, but go listen to King Para because King Para remains. Cool. Cool. Uh, Wacken 2021. Yeah. Uh, Slipknot God, no, Priest. Um, the line is fucking orgasmic. It's pretty good. It's fucking orgasmic. I've, I've sent it to my mates. It's like all of our favourite sort of like cheesy eighties throwback slash comedy bands are there and like Jesus. UD, uh, UDO and Extremo and Rose Tattoo with the mainstays of Wacken. I'm yeah. not seeing Mambo Kurt on here though. Mambo Kurt's there, mate, trust me. Of course he is. Mambo Kurt's knocking about on there. Um yeah, sold out obviously because it always is. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh need to make a fucking way back there at some point. Somehow. Oh, yeah, we do. Somehow. Maybe get on the plane. Yeah. No, fuck that. We'll get the bus like the first yeah, time. Dude, right, Lordy of that. No, fuck the boss. Lordy of that. Wait a minute. Oh, was I looking at the one from last year? No? No. Lordy's on here, definitely. Yeah, no, but I mean... Sli- Slipknot, Lordy at the gates. Yeah, there's not that many bands on there. That I thought there was more, like, all the really silly ones that I like, like Beast in Black and others. Oh, no, I've not seen that. <laughs> bands Dave likes. Beast in Black and others. <laughs> Alright, okay, that might be 2020, but I thought they just rolled all the bills of it. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that's started. Anyway. That's good. Is it, given, is it ambitious to have to have festival announcements now, do you think? Nah. Yeah, I think it'll be, if it's not over and done with, it'll be, everyone's despondent enough yep. to make it over and done with. Yep. Yep, yeah, pretty much, mate. This is why everything's been done for... Uh, everything this year has been wiped, and this is why everything's been done for early next year at the earliest. Yep, yep. Festi- cool. Festivals are going to be on. We're going to be there at Bloodstock. It's going to be amazing. Don't you worry. Right. And if Bloodstock ain't on, we'll go sit in the field and get pissed. Yep. Yep. We'll cool. do it. Over to you. Oh, me again. Um, Blind Guardian are in the studio. Sweet. Sweet. Once again, I know nothing about this. <laughs> Just Blind Guardian in the studio. So if if you like your music long and la 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 and Lord of the Rings, uh, then you are in for a treat, my friend. I saw Blind Guardian. It looks like a few years ago. It's pretty good. We did. They were awesome. Yeah. It was yeah. the same same weekend demo we were on. It uh, was the last the last outing of ICS Vortex and his fucking shin pads. Oh yeah, it was that. Yes, it was that Bloodstock one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was that one. Yeah, the Blind Guardian did one a couple of years back as well, where I was yeah. actually into Blind Guardian, and that was that was good. Just uh, go la 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 yeah. I like how um, the pandemic is just forcing everyone to knuckle down and like, all right, well, I can't be doing yeah. out for a year. Yeah. I've wanked myself dry. I've watched all the Netflix. All right, let's write some tunes. Oh, that's my actual job, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I've got one for um, 
Ah, you know what? There's a serious one and a non-serious one. I'll go for the non-serious one. Do you remember Hot Action Cop from 2003? Fever for the flavour. <laughs> Do you think that that could get some? Stooky, stooky. Yep, yes. Yes, Jim, I They've got a second album out, and it's from 2016. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought I'd bang them into Spotify and see if they had, like, a career. And it was like, they do. They have two albums, one from 2003 with Fever for the Flavour and uh, one from four years ago. Oh, yeah, Hot Action Cop, right, that's it. Yep, yep. I'm going to give it a listen. I'll listen to it side by side with uh, Ramstein. I'll report back. <laughs> Just repeat them. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. yeah and maybe my be like, it's about it's songs about how they've got kids now and they don't have time to do anything. <laughs> do you think that I could get some free time? Free time. Uh, yeah, Fever for the Flavor, track four on their self-titled album, or you could just buy the single. Oh, if you really want to be, if you want to be fucking like cult about it, just go and get a Kerrang CD from back in the day, and it's bound yeah. to be on it. It's it's on a fucking playlist called New Metal Workout. Who the fuck works on <laughs> What sort of pink fucking little two kilo weights are you trying to fucking curl listening to Heart Action Cop? <laughs> anyway, Facebook. Um, a few weeks ago, I think, started like banning accounts, um, like gaming streaming accounts yeah. that were playing music. Mm-hmm. Now they're starting to license all the music from your massive fuck off um, record label conglomerates with a view yeah. to letting people stream the music legally yeah. uh, while uh, playing games and fucking about. So basically, first we're yeah, trying yeah. to trying to be Twitch. Yeah. Don't care. Fuck off. <laughs> Stop trying to do everything first, Buck, yeah. Stop trying to do everything, you fucking twice. Just get it, get back in your box, you fucking bellends. What do you think you're playing at? What the fuck do you think you... Ah, it makes me mad. Yeah. Stop trying to give me more options. It makes it worse. <laughs> Stop trying to give me more options. You know what? Actually, my sort of despondence for Facebook has spilled out on my um, underwater hockey team. They've actually abandoned Facebook group and Facebook Messenger in favour of an app called TeamReach, which is far yeah. more fucking uh, dynamic and flexible for what we actually want. Yeah. It's just fucking... In fact, I'm going to plug them. TeamReach. Tell Team your Reach. mates to get the fuck off Facebook Messenger and get onto TeamReach. It's loads, loads fucking easier to manage whatever you're trying to manage. If you've got, like, a group of, like... Similar, like if you've got like a drinking group and you've got like a, a Facebook sh- um, group for that, and you've got another one which is like your fucking gaming group, fuck them all, fuck all off, and go straight to Team Reach and do it all on there. Fuck Facebook, <laughs> fucking bell ends. Yeah, yeah, get you on that one, man. Get you on that one, but yeah, it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> action cop, yeah, Hot action cop, yeah. Back to the light out of metal news, Jim. Jesus, man. Have you got uh, any more uh, for any more? Yes. Um, d- Okay, so yes, uh, uh, you, this is the feature we've uh, all been waiting for. Well, unfortunately, we we don't have silly named band of the week. It has not been a good week for silly named bands. So there we uh, go. I apologise for that one. But this week in metal tat, <laughs> this week in metal tat, Death are going to be releasing. Oh, there's going to be some uh, bobbleheads released to commemorate the release of um, Death's album and i forget which album it is death's album spiritual healing we're going to be releasing bobbleheads oh shit um, what do they look like then is it just one uh, of the priest about to it, smack that guy yeah it's the priest smacking the guy the woman in the pink top and the guy gets smacked around the head so there are bobbleheads <laughs> uh the bobbleheads of those <laughs> it's that scene done in bobbleheads and it comes <laughs> with a 
cool looking picture disc as well. So if you've got more brass than sense, you can spend your money on some tap from death. What's your objective with Raw's metal tap? Is it to start like com- <laughs> compile like all the all the tap that happens and hope that you can find someone that's bought some or all of it? I don't know, man. It's just I, don't, I think I've watched too much Ashens. That guy who reviews tat on his sofa, and I feel as though that I want to kind of like be like him in a way. But it just it just makes me chuckle where it's kind of like you know you're churning out the sort of serious metal news like oh look more music live bands everything's getting good and then you just you just want a little bit of a break and go here's some metal tat and I mean it's <laughs> how, how could I have not reported on Jamie Jaster Pasta come the fuck on that's not tat mate. That's not tap, mate. It's a food revolution. Yeah, you can insulate the walls with it if you must. Exactly. Right. That's uh, that's my news done. That is. That's all my the, news done. That is all the exciting shit that has happened in the world of metal. Yeah, man. It's you know what? It, it's kind of like on reflection. I've struggled every week trying to find something remotely interesting. Uh, <laughs> it's just, just what it is. I, and you look at what I come up with, and you go, "No, I don't." <laughs> <laughs> But I wonder if it's just like I know I know I keep sort of stating the mission statement, but it's like the podcast is about trying to find a peer group that's more into metal before we sort of like we sort of like die away into sort of middle class obscurity, and it's like do all of the metalheads in the world are they going you're right mate yeah you're right yeah any updates not really (laughs) (laughs) has that been it for the last year or has it just been is it always like that I don't fucking know anyway. Are you ready for the, today's feature? The thing I've been wanting to do for about two or three fucking years. Oh, my fuck. I don't know if I am, mate. I really, really don't know if I am. <laughs> do you want to do yourself a favour? And do you want to close your eyes while I start sharing the screen? <laughs> yeah, go on. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, it's, it's actually small, so I've got it. I was checking out what the uh, death album was called because I'd forgot what it is. So I'm not looking at the screen right now, so you can... I'll just click it back up again when you tell me it's safe. <laughs> Is this a fucking PowerPoint, Jim? Have you made a fucking PowerPoint? I was so close in a PowerPoint. I've just realised it's in the top corner, so I've shut my eyes. <laughs> Go. <laughs> oh, Jesus fucking Christ, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus I've done Christ. That. I've stepped up my timeline software. Fucking hell, there's backgrounds and everything to it. Man, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I only get one, though, and then I've got to pay 750 a month, and I'm not fucking doing that. Fucking hell, man. This is it. Right. So anyway, <laughs> as, as I've been hyping up, this is this is grade amateur. Um, grade fucking amateur history of Roadrunner Records part one. Part one of approximately four or five, the rate this is fucking going. Fucking hell, Dead Kennedys were on Roadrunner. I'll explain everything in a minute. I <laughs> <laughs> just spoil it now. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's all, it's, it's all, it's all above board. So, right, okay. Let me, let me contextualize this. So, there's going to be three formats for this. There's going to be the podcast. So, we're going to do. I'm going to do. My, I've got this scripted. So, I'm going to be able to do the best I can trying to describe everything that's, you know, happened over the last forty fucking years. I'm, there's I'm the scripted at all. I'm just going to be chipping in and reacting uh, at very, very inappropriate points as I see fit. This is it. Um, there's the hopefully on, this will be on YouTube tomorrow tomorrow being the 16th of September this is me doing effectively a screencast which is a a timeline accompaniment to what I'm reading fucking Raw loves it <laughs> and Raw, then as, Raw, Raw's still recovering from the shock of the Channel 4 Metalhead this is a this is a this is the new thing my non up. 
my non-information processing brains just got to just got to get around this. And it <laughs> was just not least, I'm going to dump the fucking transcript for this on a blog site somewhere. <laughs> because the thing that hasn't the thing is this is mostly like fucking a lot of it is in, in terms of narrative. There's things I've had to string together, things I've had to assume, and mm. things which there's just no information whatsoever. So right, I, I yeah. wanted to have like being the academic I am, this yeah. needs to be recorded somewhere in text for someone to call me out on it. Yeah. That's the point. All right, okay, okay, wait, yeah, I get you. And it occurred to me, like, only last week, and I've been doing this for, like, three weeks, it's 40 years since Roadrunner was formed. Happy birthday, Roadrunner. Yeah, fucking A, man. Right, okay, are you fucking ready? Oh, yeah, fuck it, go on, why not? (laughs) Feel free to interrupt, by the way, because this is going to be a lot of me just talking. Oh, I will, mate, I will, don't you worry. (laughs) Right, okay, so there's a... A quote from Pete Steele here from Typo Negative, which I thought was poignant, uh, yeah. considering what I'm doing here. There's two things that people is, is should it never. Pete Steele or Pete Steele's penis talking? Like, it's <laughs> definitely he's not drunk in this one. In right, where okay. I got this from. Cool. So, there's two things that people should never look into, and that is what goes into the workings of record companies, <clears throat> and what goes into the making of sausages. You don't want to know. So, uh-huh. this is also the same guy that said. We don't care what you think in the song We Hate Everyone. So true to his wishes, I'm going to disregard his comment and look into the workings of Roadrunner Records. So, you bloody rebel, Jim. You, 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 you the dead can't defend themselves. Academic, you bloody Ooh. academic rebel, you. You'll be cast out of your tenure at whatever shit-all university is going to be in there. So which, um, let's, tell me about your experience with Roadrunner Records, as in, like, what does it mean to you? Because I think, like, to go in blind is fine, mm. but... Um... My experience of Roadrunner Records is there were, there were the label where all of the sort of heavier new metal acts were on, so I think I got into Roadrunner through uh, Slipknot, because I think Slipknot were on Roadrunner, weren't they? Were they? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So you got to that, and then after that, it was like all oh, your Lama Gods and your Chimeras, and then there was the Roadrunner United album, which I never really got into, but realised it was a thing, and then they went downhill. <laughs> okay. In terms of a narrative, you're not. So, uh, there guys, is a trajectory. Uh, we don't have to listen to the rest of the thing now. We're done, so uh, we're going to wrap up it. with uh, what the fuck you been up to. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, it was all about like. Um, Ascendancy, God Trivium Ascendancy. This yeah, is fucking yeah. shit up. And then I started as I was going into HMV and buying more CDs and things like that. You start seeing this little red logo in the bottom fucking corner, and I'm like, "What the fuck's this about?" And eventually, kind of the brand became synonymous with with me for like that emerging scene, that yeah. kind of metal corey, um, post hardcorey scene. <clears throat> Slightly having a new metal, wasn't it? Are way. you saying new, new metal as in NU or new as in like? As in, as in NU, it was like the step. It was like one of the stepping stones from new metal into heavier shit. I'd say it wasn't. It was more of an adjacent step. Uh, whatever okay. came before it, we can we can talk about that as a different. That's like a roundtable discussion thing. But it's interesting how we both come out. <laughs> Shut up, if you don't know what you're on about, I've researched this for three weeks. You prick. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. no, no there is a there is a reason behind why I'm saying it like that. But I find it com- compelling how yeah. our associations with the brand itself were kind of same but different all right okay because okay. that's kind of i think of what they were going for yeah, yeah, let's yeah. continue <laughs> i really wish this was a powerpoint so you could just click <laughs> but let's continue click <laughs> the fire thing. refreshments are here and here and if you there's no fire alarm test today so if you hear when it is real please follow me <laughs> out <laughs> right 
so Roadrunner is known to us metalheads as the flagship label for many, 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 many trailblazing metal bands, including Merciful Fate, Annihilator, Obituary, Cyber Negative, Suffocation, Sepultura, Slipknot, Devil Driver, Machine Head, Dream Theater, Trivium, and Nickelback, to name a few. <laughs> if you identify as a metalhead, but you've not come across a Roadrunner Records, I'm pretty fucking surprised. What have you been doing? Shame on you. It has, I think it's like we can agree when we say like it's been a ubiquitous name in metal for... Yeah a long ass time yeah i think it's one of them where you say name a purely metal label and roadrunner records would be one that goes ping like that you know yeah it's like roadrunner yeah, yeah. nuclear blast century media Does, uh, is century media exclusively metal i the only thing i listen to on century media is uh metal so yeah fair enough fair enough <laughs> okay me, so let me let me research while you're waffling and um yeah, because they're not, not, they're not one of the my own thing. <laughs> yeah. So for the past 40 years, no less than 265 bands have at some point featured on the Roadrunner roster. Uh, the journey from those first signings up until today has been marred with many successes and controversies and culminated in a mass cull of staff in 2012, which led to a, uh, a mass cull of bands. So right now, at the time of me talking, there are only 20 artists that bear the Roadrunner label, okay, and really? three of them... Three of them are fronted by Corey Taylor. <laughs> That's fifteen fucking percent, man. Yeah. Just, just as a, just as a side, before uh, this becomes irrelevant, even though it's probably irrelevant now, anyway. Uh, just looking at the list of um, <clears throat> uh, artists on uh, Thingy Central Media, they are pretty much all metal, apart from Ghost, who is synthwave, but his last album was black metal as fuck, so that that counts. Uh-huh. Yep. Fair enough. Um, yeah, back to you. Sorry. Go ahead. So twenty, 20 th- artists, five of them are Corey Taylor, ten of them, three of them, three of them, fifteen percent, fifty percent. Which I was, is why Corey time, Taylor must be stopped. Yeah, oh, don't you fucking dare, mate. <laughs> I, I was actually going to do the numbers and figure out how much like revenue um, Corey Taylor was directly okay. responsible for, but um, I thought, no, I don't want to. I don't want to like put him on a pedestal or anything, right? <laughs> so. With this, what you're looking at and what you're listening to, I'm kind of stepping on some toes here because there are people far more qualified than me. There's Banger TV who do this kind of shit all the time. There's Martin Popoff who bangs out books, like about six books a year on like unofficial metal biographies and things like that. And as we get through, you're going to quickly realize that this is probably going to be a book at some point, not from me, but from someone who knows shit, Mm. right? And I'm kind of limited here because... I'm three miles away from the British Library, but I can't get into it. <laughs> so all my you sources... You want to be middle class, but this is the second round. You're like, well, I can't get into the British Library. That's just down the room from me. <laughs> but my point is, all my sources are kind of like online, secondary shit. Um, so I've had to string together whatever I can string together. So consider this, right? Consider this, what you've listened to, version 0.1, because I can see myself coming back to this when I find out more. Yeah, and when I'm not here to rip the piss out of it. <laughs> ah, yeah, it's totally acceptable. So hopefully, hopefully, if, if and there's enough interest in this, someone can go out there and tell me I'm wrong about shit. Who, someone who was in the know. Anyway, right. So to tell this story in as much detail as possible, Raw, mm. we have to take a trip back in time. The 1980s Netherlands. <laughs> See, this is where we just need some, like, 80s music playing, but we don't, we're not going to pay for that. No way. <laughs> No way. Okay, so the record industry at the time is uh, facing its major crisis in this period here, sort of like late 70s, Mm -hmm. Uh, since its rise in the 50s and 60s. So as described by Coups de Vries, 
director of the Netherlands of, uh, of CBS Records. The yeah. first quarter of 1983 saw another strong decline in sales. In recent years, we have thought time and time again that the low point had been reached. Invariably, a revival was expected for the following year. But unlike an improvement, we were faced with an accelerating decline. That's why I now dare to speak of a disastrous development. If there is no improvement in the coming period, there will be no more room for a number of record companies. Hmm. There will even be greater pressure to strive for new partnerships, especially in the Netherlands, because in our small area, we have too many record companies and distributors. Okay. So that's ahead of CBS Records in the uh, Netherlands. But yeah. as is with most industry bubbles, uh, this is likely attributable to the emerging technologies of the time. Uh-huh. Uh in this case, the increased ownership of like stereo cassettes, um, broadcasting public places like you know radios and cars and like fucking shops having uh, music on and stuff like that, yeah, and yeah. generally we're coming out of like you know the post-war depressions and we're finding people have more things to do with their recreational time. Yeah. So, DeVries also reasoned that the initial strength of the music market prior to this period was the strong population growth after the mm-hmm. war. So. Yeah. This has now come to an end, apparently. And what he said was, this is a direct result of the pill. As yep. a result, the target group of uh, 12 to 20-year-olds is decreasing drastically. In our future okay. projections, we assume that our target group will be reduced by 4 to 5 million consumers yep. uh, for Europe only. While the 12 to 20-year-olds have always been our largest target group, that's now going to decline massively. So, you know, next time she asks you to rub her up, Raw, just think about what you're doing to Arcade Fire. <laughs> So it's that go, uh, go raw for emo, is that what we're saying? I am saying shit, mate. <laughs> so from an article written at the time by uh, a, a, an esteemed journalist called Constant Myers. What a name. Uh, what a name. Oh, yeah, you should see the spelling. Who are you? I'm Constant. Constant Myers. I could be mispronouncing it, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> The first signs that the market was saturated came after a record indus- the, the record industry achieved the largest sales in history with the gigantic sales peak of Christmas 1977. I'm all about fucking I'm all about quality control here. <laughs> this is due to the overwhelming success of John Travolta in the film Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> Despite these signs, <laughs> it took a number of years before the industry realized that the decline was of a lasting nature. So we keep seeing um, record sales doing well, but really we're having like isolated incidents like Saturday Night Fever and other things like that, which look like uh, everything's performing well, but actually there's a trend in decline. Okay. Or a declining trend? I don't know. Uh, to illustrate the perceived calm before the storm, uh, the Netherlands label Polygram uh, had a U.S. market share... They're Dutch, yeah, the head office is Dutch. Really? Did not know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, their market share in the US had grown from 5% to 20%, which is fucking massive if you think about like the scale yeah. of money we're talking about, especially at that time. Oh, yeah. That's why this I thought can... you know, American because it's like, mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this can be attributed to multi-million selling albums uh, and 45s by the Bee Gees, John, Donna Summer, Village People, Andy Gibb, Cool and the Gang, and rock band Kiss. Uh, for a short while in the 70s, it was the world's largest record company. Okay. That's my boy, Constant Myers. Constant Myers. Uh, so the combination of the inflated, saturated market and uh, in addition to the decline in returning consumer base was predicted to lead to the bubble bursting, right? So there's also like a new obligation on record companies as well because 
as opposed to just being in a band, being enough to sell a record, they now have to support an entire record cycle to these labels, uh, you know, promoting the album with advertisements, maybe some music videos in some cases, uh, and like a press cycle and shit like that. So the burdens have increased, the sales have gone down, everything's kind of gone to pot. Yeah. So what do we do about this? It was suggested by uh, Polygram Records co-director Rob Steet that as far as the future is concerned, our right to exist depends on the possession of performing rights. If you don't have them, in fact, if we don't get them today, we better start cleaning up a family grave because that's what we're going to end up in. So Steet is referring to the long drawn out battle between the record industry and the government. This mm-hmm. concerned the recognition of the industry as the holder of rights in production produced under its responsibility. And then in the context of post-EU Britain, we need to remember that this is all at a time where the European Economic Community, mm. the prequel to the EU, mm. was a major battlefield when determining the legality of certain commercial arrangements. So the EEC, the, the, you know, the EEC was a thing in the 70s, but they hadn't figured it all out yet by this point. Right, okay. Not everything was, not all the rules mm. and how, how commercial arrangements were made between the member states was completely mm. ironclad. Yeah. And all the countries need to be on the same page. So this had a massive knock-on effect with how IP, intellectual property and copyrights and licensing and distribution was going to be sorted between European artists, American artists, you know, trade between, all that shit. So a few things needed to be arranged with regards to these rights in the Treaty of Rome, which is what formed the EEC, but the Dutch government had still not proceeded to ratify these conventions, as Myers noted. So the consensus across the Dutch record industry was that the record companies would slowly morph into publishing houses, we're not as fussed about investing any money in the artist and doing that kind of side of stuff. We're literally going to be um, dealing with only IP. Yeah. So, for example, you know, it kind of flies in odds of what the world ends up turning into mm. because here we're saying we expect to make money off the same music made. You know, we're only in like 1983 at this point. So let's call it 30 years, 35 years of music, of recorded yeah. music and copyrightable music. We want to last off that forever, please. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> so enter your boy your boy <laughs> case russells now this yeah. guy like he's you hear you see him referred to in many kind of like metal media like yeah, if, you, yeah. if you pierce the veil slightly if you lift the veil a little bit and you start talking to record execs and things like that in the metal community occasionally his name comes up but there's never been any particular focus on him right so that's what Until this now well, this is what this particular section of this history is kind of wants to do. Right. Because it is kind of staggering the impact he's had. Yeah, and it's kind okay. of mental how you can Google him and yeah. there will be some references to him. But this is the one of three pictures I could find of him. Wow. It's, it's pretty mad. It's pretty fucking crazy. So anyway, Dutch record uh, industry crisis. Case um, Wessels comes in. So Case Wessels, avid opera fan, had other ideas. He wasn't fussed about the publishing house and the IP aspects of this. Instead of bean counting and trying to predict the market movements and consumer trends, Case opted to find a path to recovery through emerging music trends themselves. As such, Roadrunner was born in 1980. Boom. Uh, boom. Good lad. Um, so one thing I tried to do this past couple of weeks is try and find like the Dutch version of Company's House so I could find out when he, record- when he registered Roadrunner. <laughs> Because it would be cool to know like the exact date that it is four code. years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you know, we might have to just fucking settle for a roundabout now. Yeah. Oh yeah. The dates you can see here, a yeah. lot of it's bollocks. I've had to put in some kind of date, but this is totally vague. Okay. As we move through the eighties, I'll get more um concrete. 
Yeah, and it'll be, t- you know, use your common sense. Like, if there's an, if we mention an album that has a Wikipedia article, I've probably got the date right. Yeah. <laughs> you oh, know. have you? Oh, have I? So, anyway, he said, there are far too many accountants and financial experts to the government and too few people who are actually working on the music and also have some knowledge about how you can turn musical passion into economic returns. Mm. So... Where's this guy coming from, man? At the time, Case had experience under his belt as both the uh, as head of both Phonogram Holland, child company of Polygram, and RCA Holland. And according to Gloria uh, Cavalera, as in Max Cavalera's wife, he was also the A and R guy for Black Sabbath during the seventies. Really? Yeah, but this is anecdotal. I don't have any. Well, I don't have any proof of this, right? But it kind of stacks up because yeah. in 1971. The UK labels of Philips, Fontana, Mercury, and Vertigo, who were Sabbath's label, label yeah. were joined up into a new company called Phonogram, which uh-huh. case was the head of. Uh-huh. So there is a link there, but I don't know whether it's enough to me to... You know, if Gloria Cavallaro says it's probably true, but I just can't find anything yeah. else concrete. Right. right, okay. So, trying to but, put myself but, in case... I'm, I'm going to throw this out there now, because this is going to happen at some point, but... Could Case Vessels also be the Channel 4 secret message? <laughs> <laughs> you know what, mate? I've never seen him and <laughs> his person in the same room together. <laughs> oh, my God. So, <laughs> so I'm trying to put myself into Case's shoes for a minute. Uh, so late 70s, he's being faced with an oversaturated industry and the likely slow death of record labels due to the factors, uh, factors mentioned. For whilst we're soon to learn Case's role in the wider onset of metal culture through the 80s, it's interesting that all this seemed to just start because Case saw the writing on the wall and he thought, mm. right, well, this is getting this bubble's about to burst. Let me cut myself away um, from the sinking ships and start actually meeting the demand, the smaller demand with a smaller supply, as it were. Oh, and okay. focus on the product itself. So it's not, it's no longer about there's too much, you know, I, th- I think the impression I was getting from when reading about the the, the crisis was there's a lot of money and no one really knows the value of these products and people don't know the value of the music. Right. So that's why you've got a load of money being invested in fucking absolute no-go bands. Yeah. Like a load of disco artists, a fuck ton of artists that are going to go nowhere. Yeah. Um, and he was like, fuck that. Let's focus on the product. Let's meet the, t- the smaller demand with a smaller mm. supply. And the thing we've got to remember, and as, as I'm about to go on to... Um, he has actually been in the record industry game for a fucking long time at this point. Yeah, so we've seen a couple of trends come and go and knows... No he knows there's a cyclical about. nature. Yeah, there has to be a cyclical yeah. nature. And all he had to do was avoid boxing himself in, like that. Like it's happened with disco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's what... this is, Again, this is me, pure conjecture, pure guesswork. It feels like that's what he's going for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyone, like, fucking Case's wife, come out of the fucking woodwork and tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> come, come at me, bro. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's not a lot known about the early days of Case, but I did find a few anecdotes that are kind of fun. All right. So where am I? <laughs> Fucking, we're going back to 1966. <laughs> what are you laughing at now? No, I'm just, <laughs> I thought it stopped. I thought that, that where it started was the end. But oh no, Case at phonogram <laughs> goes all the way back there. <laughs> I hope you like this. It took me a goddamn long time to get this to the quality it is now. <laughs> Never change the quality. Right, Never okay. change the fucking quality. So, 
a phonogram campaign uh, with Dutch band Q65 cause a sensation. Uh, in a recent book about the Hague Group by Pim Sheelings in 2009, guitarist Jupe Roilofs said, to increase our brand awareness yeah, to increase our brand awareness and promote the single The Life I Live, the record company decided in 1966 that we, as long-haired scum, had to sail a dinghy from London to Schevenheinen. No, okay. shit, no, I've done that wrong. Schevenheinen, Schevenheinen. Yeah, I'm, done, I'm sticking okay. with that. We cursed Phonogram and the label manager, Case Wessels, earliest mention of him, who came up with this great stunt. After a while, the peer of Sheveninen came into view. I was I was spelling this. I'm looking I'm looking at this on bloody Google Maps to see how right. much of a C sorry, sorry, S C H. S C H, yeah. E V E N. E V E N. E V V for Vera. Yeah. I N G E N. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After a while, the pair of Sheveninen came into view. It seemed like no one was there. A nice mess, we thought. No dog showed up. But the closer we got to the pier, the more we saw. It looked black, about 10,000. They came because Radio Veronica had broadcast every hour. This afternoon, Q65 lands in Sheveninen. We were given a press we had given a press conference and then performing in front of 10,000 people, The Life I Live became a huge hit because of all that hoopla. It shot straight to the top five. Mm-hmm. There is actually footage of them playing there as well, but I just couldn't get it for some reason. Oh, um, yeah. it is a fair distance that is because it's not as if, if looking at um, looking at uh, Google Maps, it is just a straight line from Felixstowe to yeah, Felixstowe to Shivinen's pretty pretty straightforward. But yeah, that's some fucking navigation down the Thames. They did it from the fucking Thames, yeah. Yeah, down the Thames and across the fucking you know, that's not the Channel that. But what's what's that bit called there? That's like above the Channel, the North Sea. Yeah, it's like the bottom bit of the North Sea. <laughs> Bob's going to kill us. The ocean. <laughs> the ocean. So that's the earliest thing I could find on Case. The, so the, er- the earliest recorded instance of him doing anything cool yeah. or anything noteworthy or internet worthy <laughs> was around March 1966. And here he's the fucking head of, um, or the label manager at least, if that's perhaps regarded as something different, a phonogram. Yeah. All right, cool. Next. Yeah. You're going to love this one. <laughs> Kubi. And the fucking blizzards. So this is relation to the. In, is in that album called group. Apple Knockers Flop House? Oh, it gets better. <laughs> it gets so much fucking better. <laughs> in 1969, the album Apple Knockers Flop House was set to be released. Like covers are men. Okay, this is all about the cover, by the way. Oh, Case Wessels and Anton Whitcamp, label manager and copywriter at Phonogram Polygram, came up with a publicity stunt. They invited a number of farmers from the area of Wheeze Up at Williams Parkins Bar uh, for a cover photo session with the band. There was free food and drinks for all. And when the farmers were reasonably drunk, Case Wessels brought in a stripper who did a strip act on the bar, a sensation in those days. The farmers loved it. But when they sobered up the next day and discovered the whole thing was photographed and filmed, they panicked. The mayor of Zuilo took up arms to protect his citizens from a scandal. <laughs> So the pictures were so the pictures were not allowed to be used. Thus, the album cover only contains the very cheerful band. The film, made by the VARA, has never been broadcast, despite frantic efforts to retrieve it. And when you know that, and you look at that cover now, oh, you go, "Oh yeah, this is cropped," and they're just two hammered fucking Dutch musicians. So uh, I want to ask you, as a as a Motley Crue connoisseur. Yes. Bro, I want to ask yes. you, what's the state of debauchery 
1969. Do you think, are you getting a good impression that this is a, a tried and tested um, yeah, way of acting out? I think so, because at 69, you know, you've got the entire hippies free love thing, aren't you? Where you, and you've got all that porn that you find in woods where it's all the sort of like colour of this um, album cover where where it's all faded and shit, but you know it looked faded and shit at the time and that's not with age (laughs) because that's how cameras worked back then. And I don't know if we get in the era of everyone in page three having triangular boobs, which I noticed was a thing from looking at old mechanics uh, walls where I used to work where there was just page threes everywhere and the 70s was the era of very uh, triangular boobs, but then then they've disappeared. Don't know what happened, mate. <laughs> Vitamin deficiency. I don't know what happened, but I think for departure because yeah, it's like you, you got all them like confessions of a window cleaner films and shit like bit after that, and, and that was everyone running around with their tits out and shit. So yeah, yeah, I think it's like proto crew levels of tits out. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's good. I like it. I like it how the mayor fucking was up in arms to protect his farmers from a <laughs> yeah. scandal. Cause there's some, because there's some there's some there's some old girls like at the door with, yeah. a, with an apron on and a, and a, and a rolling pin ready to knock fuck yeah. off. I could I could just imagine this sort of like I could just see him now he's sort of like this pretty built you know like 60, 65 year old dude who's sort of like you know he was he was too young to well Alan didn't really get involved in World War One but he's, he's he's fought for the Nazis during World War Two he's a good fucking orange Dutch Protestant and he'll be fucking damned if those hippies take over his town. <laughs> <laughs> Just seeing there with his fucking double-barreled Breck barrel and his tweed, like you know, shouting in Dutch at him. And, you know. <laughs> it's, it's, while I'm here, it's worth mentioning. Check out these two bands because it's, um, they're both sort of riding a, a weird sort of Dutch kind of like hippie wave. Like Kubi and the Bl- uh, Blizzards, I'll say, sound like Joe Cocker if he didn't if he decided one day he'd been turned down too many times and decided I'm not going to try and get laid anymore. <laughs> that's that's what it sounds like. And if fucking don't at me, I don't care what you think. That's what it sounds like. Anyway, right. So that's all I've got on case on the yeah. run-up to this go era, era, except there's a massive fucking gap, obviously, in the 70s, as you, as you can see, um, <laughs> except for someone's word that he did A&R for, uh, for Black Sabbath. <laughs> I, I did spot him on uh, Discogs having produced a single by the Young Sisters called Do the Latin Hustle oh. um, for Phonogram in 1975. That all stacks up. Okay. Uh, where is he? There you go, produced by <laughs> Nigel Green and Case Wessels. <laughs> Oh, what am I? What am I without footnotes? Fuck Tell knows. me. Fuck knows. I don't know. <laughs> so this but, produced, um, yeah. So the interesting bit here is it was made in the USA, and it was hmm. co-produced by M- M- Nigel Grange. So interesting because it was produced by Nigel Grange because he would go on to find uh, Onsign Records the following year and jumpstart the careers of Boomtown Rats and Sinead O'Connor and a load of shit. Right. And it's interesting that it's made in the USA because it's telling me that again. He's been at this for so fucking long, but now he's jet setting. He's going all over the fucking shop. He's the head of Phonogram in Holland, but he's still doing things in the US. Ceases out and about. Yeah, yeah. Case. Case. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I, I did that many, 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 many times as well. Oh, uh, so I've been pronouncing also, that author wrong for years then. So it's Case Newton Boom. All right, cool. I believe so. Right. I believe so. Um, yeah, it also tells you the position of the A&R person because this guy's an exec. He's not a musician. Hmm. Uh, and you'll come to find that the people who have that kind of business role in the making of music, mm. it goes beyond business in a big way. And you'll learn that through the story. It's fucking. Oh, crazy. Well, then, I'm sure I will fucking learn it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Raw, raw. What? Do me a favor. Can you fuck off, mate? <laughs> 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 uh, 
<laughs> right, so oh 1980, 1983, Roadrunner is here. It's here, it's with us, it's among us. Um, so as we mentioned in the intro, Roadrunner is synonymous, uh, synonymous, synonymous with heavy metal. I'm getting there. And before we get to that, I'd be remiss if I didn't launch into a tirade of odd shit they put out on order to get the label <laughs> off the ground. We do love a good tirade of odd shit. Ah, by the way, in, if you're looking at the timeline, it's all over the fucking shop. There's no... There's no way I can actually edit things to line up. Right. So you'll have like, every year I do how many Roadrunner releases they were, there were, and ideally I'd have them all on the same line, but they're all right. over the place. Sorry, you'll just have to bear with me, it's fine. Yeah, Look, no, you'll find there was no fucking ads on this video, so you get what you fucking pay for. Right. <laughs> As put by Chris Dick from Decibel Magazine. Great Chris name. Dick, from, well, the great, great name. Uh, in its earliest stages, the Netherlands-based outfit functioned more like a licensing and distribution mechanism than a proper label. To get it off the ground, Roadrunner pulled music from British and North American markets for music connoisseurs in Europe. Roadrunner's first mm-hmm. releases weren't heavy metal or rock. They were from American singer-songwriter Jim Crouch. Yeah. So this explains why you've got Dead Kennedys there. Okay. They're not, they aren't signed to Roadrunner. Right. They're, distribu- they're distributed by them. So you get yeah. Cherry Red Records, that was the Dead Kennedy's label, and you've got Roadrunner yeah. Productions, BV. BV is um, limited in Dutch, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, cool. Oh, that, oh, I forgot how many good tracks were on Fresh Fruit. Yeah, man. Um, um, little side note, if you want. Um, I went to see the Dead Kennedys when I was in uh, Australia, and it was possibly the most hungover I had ever been in my life. <laughs> <laughs> That's not on the timeline, though. It's not the timeline, but I just thought as an aside, just do something to add to this. <laughs> You'll also notice um, as I'm flying through that the background of this is the old rudder and a logo. Yes. Um, let's go back over here. Oh, we're phonogram now. That's what. That's what. We're, yeah. When th- this one on the left is the one you know and love. Yeah. yeah. But it changes throughout the the, the times. Oh, dear. Um, so anyway. Expected anything less of you, Matt? Yeah. This fucking mate. These rabbit holes. Right. So, Chris Dick. <laughs> He's largely right, yeah? Uh, yeah. However, the first of many Jim Croce records was actually um, the eighth record Roadrunner had put out at the time. So this is the first Jim one, but actually the eighth record that they'd actually put out. Obviously, you saw Dead Kennedys a bit earlier. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if we're assuming that Roadrunner's catalogue numbers are anything to go by, and it indicates chronology, um, again, that's five, 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 And then the catalogue number here, wherever the fuck it is. Ah, uh, one, two, five. Okay, that's all over the fucking place. But if you look on Discogs, it it that's how it orders it in catalog numbers. Right, okay, catalog numbers. And right. Yeah, and I've obviously just like nicked that one from a different um, yeah. different cycle. Anyway, uh, also Jim himself had been dead ten years at this point by the time of his debut. All right. Yeah, yeah, he died in the early seventies. Uh, by the time this had been released in, on Roadrunner in Europe, he'd been dead eight years. But it serves well to illustrate the point at its inception. Roadrunner effectively acted as the go-between for the high-fidelity record store clerks of Europe uh, and less ubiquitous music releases of the rest of the world. So that's what Roadrunner was. It was just doing a lot of, like, shifting hands and getting music out to the masses. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. really... It wasn't signing bands. It wasn't doing anything. Yeah. Um, so, like, posh tape swapping, then. Exactly that. <laughs> exactly. It, it, it actually, there's a really good way of saying it. <sighs> Contribute well something worthwhile. Contribute something worthwhile. It could all go wrong. Yeah, definitely. But perhaps to this audience, um, the more prominent Roadrunner releases are more noteworthy, which was the Belgian distribution for the first Dead Kennedys album, as you quite rightly noted, as well as the Benelux album. Yeah, as well as the Benelux distribution for Canada's very own Anvil. Ah, good old Anvil. Roadrunner down there. <clears throat> 
Uh, Benelux is the term for Belgium, Netherlands, and Luxembourg. They also operate in one area, in case mm. you didn't know that. I did not know. I thought it was a sort of European cough medicine. Yeah. Well, it's there's all it's so any if you if you if you crash a boat from England and you don't end up in France, you likely end up in Benelux. Benelux, right? Cool. The, super, the new superstar. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, a guy called Max uh, Feehan, right? This guy is a big fucking cheese in um, Holland. He's like the Don Arden of Holland, and it's sort of before Don Arden's time. Um, he worked for a company called Jureco. Uh, D U R E C O. Um, who I believe only put out Dutch music, which was really important in the post-war period. Mm-hmm. So one more you read about him, the more interested it gets, because he was like as popular as his the music that he sponsored was and how big his company was. He'd still be the old fucker with a giant box of records coming into a shop to sell them to you. He's right. like, that's, that's, that's his reputation in this kind of industry. <laughs> But he's, he noted this, and I've not put this on the timeline because it's too anecdotal, even more anecdotal than the yeah. Black Sabbath reference. Roadrunner Jesus. was also active in the production of light erotic videotapes. Oh, when I say that's true. <laughs> well, when I got to the district of Rotterdam with its harbour and ships, it resulted in very interesting sales. So we can presume from Max Vian, this mm. pretty reputable dude, um, Roadrunner also distributed porn. Yep, cool. I want to find evidence of that. Cool. Roadrunner porn. Gotcha. Yep. Exactly that. I've looked and I can't find anything. I can't find anything. So, and but there's the internet's not short of porn connoisseurs. So fucking help me out. Type in Roadrunner porn on Google, Jimmy Day. I did. I did. A lot of Wiley Coyote fucking Rule 34. Anyway, the first actual release by the label was a single by Leon Dangerezu, Los Ninos del Paquet. And I'll be absolutely sure to post a link wherever this is up. Um, yeah, in fact, yeah. Yeah, I put it on there. Not that you're going to see this timeline, uh, because it's a fucking it's banger, mate. It's an absolute banger. Um, remember, this label will be linked with Megadeth in a few short decades. <laughs> and whilst we're bringing it up, check out the logo. Woo! That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. yeah, man. That's a 1981 logo. Mm. Okay. More. Um, intri- more sorry, gone. Dev's Dev's question before we go on. Did you find out why it's called Roadrunner? No. No. I can find out why it was called Road Racer in the US, but we'll come to that. Ah, okay. I don't, there isn't any particular reason I don't think. I'm sure if we ask Casey, he'd tell us. Yeah, sure, ask Casey, but. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised, actually, given his history, that it was just like it was a band he really liked that got nowhere. They liked the name, so he kept the name. And then just sort of went into obscurity in the 60s or something. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's that bloke going in like running into record shops like down the road with his box going bye bye shit. Maybe, maybe. Yeah yeah, Max Feehan. Maybe he is the roadrunner. <laughs> He's the roadrunner. Yeah. Fucking help us find the secret roadrunner. <laughs> just just help us find people. <laughs> so quick, uh, we shall stop to of more interesting uh, instances of logo roadrunner there. Yeah. So it's, it's, it, I just love the iteration of this stuff. You know, when you see like the old Coke logos and stuff, I just yeah. fucking I, I love um, that shit, man. I love crap album covers from this period. Yeah. But like, oh god, yeah, like that, like like some like some last just chowing down on a Sunday in this sort of like nuclear coloured wasteland. <laughs> it's actually an hell of a love it it is mad in it it's like that fun as well though, that fun in the in the context in which she's presenting this information i scream they scream is the title of this record yeah it which, sounds like a threat 
because she's like she's smugly eating some sort of fruit salad thing looks more like a hat than it is a meal anyway yes but ice cream their scream would possibly be a title that roadrunner released further down the line as well i'd say so there we go yeah oh child de gaulle oh that's a pun and half isn't it (laughs) i get it (laughs) <laughs> so continuing the trend of doing the heavy lifting for the international music industry by distributing records across Europe, Roadrunner had 21 releases under their belt in 1981. Uh-huh. In 1982, this increased to 34. Okay. So this is where a pretty big knowledge gap comes in for me. So I don't know if, if Case is doubling up on his time, right? I don't know if he's like he's still working for Phonogram and Polygram still. I don't know mm-hmm. if he is. Or he's like two-timing on him or something. It doesn't seem likely that he would have been allowed to run his own label on the sly, yeah. um, right, whilst yeah. working for the biggest record industry, you know, industry powerhouses at the time. But I could be fucking wrong, like. Yeah. So, as it entered uh, 1983, Roadrunner brand has started to lean further and further towards rock and me- heavy metal. In fact, the second re- Roadrunner, the second I can't speak, I'm speaking too much. It's like, oh, the second Roadrunner release in 1983 was a metal compilation album licensed mm-hmm. from early new wave of British heavy metal vehicle, Neat Records, called Metal Battle. The album Not featured tracks. No, um, <laughs> Metal Battle. Don't have to have him battle metal in 1983. Where is the bastard? Top. Metal Battle. Oh, nice one. Yeah. Thanks, mate. All right. Uh, the album featured tracks from acts such as Raven Anvil, Venom, Jaguar, and Witchfind. On oh, Tank. Tank are good. And Tank? Yeah. I can only mention a few, mate. I can't mention them all. Yeah, I'm just looking at them, but yeah, Tanker. Tanker, cool. Which I had done my uh, compilation of when I went to the Bovington Tank Museum. It was only bands that uh, tanks in them, so it was Sabaton and Tank <laughs> and the uh, Cambrai, what was it, the Cambrai Tank Regiment Brass Band. <laughs> <laughs> You've had a very interesting life, Raw. <laughs> I have indeed. Uh, neat <laughs> records. I'm going to keep, I'm going to come back to these because they're actually based up around us. They're kind oh, of like a Geordie record label, and oh, they seem to pick up a lot of like the non, the non Iron Maiden new wave of British heavy metal bands. And I get, I get an impression as well that these guys, as in Neat and Roadrunner, had a pretty good relationship because yeah. you'll see later on that uh, Roadrunner signed a few new wave of uh, British heavy metal bands from yeah. like the northeast. It's like, well, there's no way ah. that's an accident. That's too no, specific. I was gonna Based say, around, yeah. Just explain something that I've seen later on. Oh, well, let's explain something that you're probably going to talk about in 1990. No, I'm probably not. This is purely anecdotal on my part. I've not recorded this or written it down, so tell me what you're thinking. Oh, no, no, no. I'm just saying, like, there's there's Venom on this timeline, and, you know, Northeast, you think of Northeast Metal Venom, don't you? So. Yeah, neat records release Venom yeah, Blackmail. Yeah. Oh, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll run down the what you're seeing here. So anything red or light red is Roadrunner related. Yeah. So deep red is, like, a, what I'm considering a milestone. Right. Light red is just something they put out, either distribution licensed a minor thing going on a minor band they've signed yeah uh, everything that's like green is like an industry milestone so things that's just happening in the background yeah and anything purple is what's happening in metal in the wider spectrum of things ah, right, so okay. why you've got like stuff about metallica and and quiet riot just yeah, kicking about in the background oh, yeah right okay because i want to sort of paint the picture of while while roadrunner was dicking about running on the licensing and distribution front being the meat and potatoes of their business they're totally focusing on more emerging niche genres uh, rather than taking whatever they can fucking get and just chucking it out to whoever will buy it in my opinion i wasn't there yeah yeah uh before we go on to the bigger uh, milestones of that year of the 61 releases in 1963 uh 
uh, yeah, sorry, 1983, 41 have been classed as either rock, punk, or heavy metal on Discogs. So that's a remarkable increase from 1982, which comprised 34 records, 18 of which were classed as the same. Right. At this time, it's clear Roadrunner still had a stake in other genres, like new wave electronica and experimental. Mm. But that's about to change. Mm. So as we leave this sort of weird sort of period where Case yeah. is doing the fucking heavy lifting on behalf of the wider me- um, music industry, yeah. I'm wanting to, I've got some questions. And this is shit I just have no idea about. Okay. So who's along for the ride? Or is Case doing it all on his own? Is he just a one-man, I like this, right, this will sell, you know, the crazy kids in Amsterdam, they like yep. this stuff, you know, we'll, we'll chuck it home. Yeah, we're thinking that's... El- the... Electronica, I like this Electronica. I like this Electronica. Yeah. Um, but he's already had, like, obviously very senior experience at uh, Polygram, Phonogram, so he's got, like, a network of contacts who can help it out, right? In fact, I read before starting, um, Lita Ford's bassist on her first record, mm. um, I can't remember the guy's name, I think it's Neil Richardson, Neil somethingson, um, he helped out Case with networking over in the US trying to find metal bands in the in the early days. Yeah. Because I think he was part of a band that Case liked in the 70s. That, it's that kind of shit. This is the kind of network I'm expecting him to have uh, amassed over the years. Yeah. But I don't know. But I don't know. No, I don't know if anyone's in house because the, the, there's a registered office in Amsterdam. Um, in fact, let's take a quick look. <laughs> <laughs> you fucking bastard! Laughing at my detail. So the, apparently, the first office was there. It's just how timed it is as well. It's going. Kind of, oh, they, oh, just well. We thought we were moving out of this era. Oh no, wait a minute. They actually have a building. Boom, here it is. <laughs> so this is it. This is where the first offices were um, registered. Given the time, yeah. I reckon this was an office. Although it does look like a house. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it's it's Casey's bedroom. It's not his Casey's bedroom. Um. And yeah, I'd like to know if you when when the cutoff was between Polygram, Phonogram, and when he started writing the records. Did yeah, he have two yeah. weeks off? You know that kind of shit. A two week off, and he's like, you know, fuck your fuck your disco shit. I'm bringing metal to yeah. the masses. Yeah. So this is the, the area of the satanic panic in the United States. So throughout the 1980s, spates of incidents involving satanic ritual abuse spread across the globe. Uh, typically, such events will be reports and allegations of physical or sexual abuse in the context of like the occult or satanic rituals. Uh, as is fondly remembered, heavy metal was the antagonist in this. Mm-hmm. So, Case thought this would be an appropriate time to uh, <laughs> to basically establish his foothold uh, with yeah with its first direct signing, Danish band Merciful Fate. <laughs> <laughs> so, to paint that the was picture the of worst fucking King Diamond impression there, it's bang on. Mm. Do you remember <laughs> were you there when I was asking? Um, Bob, if he's coming to Bloodstock to see Merciful Fate next year. And he just went, oh, I can't that weekend, Jim. I'm off to see my grandma. <laughs> I, I don't remember that, Jim, but that sounds a very Bob thing to say. Yeah, hang on. Anyway, to paint the picture of where Merciful Fate sat in regards to the media and uh, the wider spectrum at the time, I give you guitarist Hank Sherman. At our live shows, we were, had these upside-down crosses and these nuns that exploded on the stage. Uh, but to me, it was basically entertainment. Uh, and to our advantage, there weren't too many bands that dealt with that kind of stuff. Uh, we had a lot of attention going on because we were satanic preachers and all that. Laughs. And King was always in interviews with Christian people on radio and TV, so that brought a lot of attention. But the knowing thing was that that kind of overshadowed the music. 
and the rest of the band, of course, was into the music and not too much into the image and the lyrics side. So we were a little bit pissed. What about the music, we said? All in all, it certainly helped us a lot. And King says even today it's just entertainment. I mean, you might as well go see a scary movie, but personally, he's into the occult, whatever that is. Mm. So the Satanism and occult aesthetics in Merciful Fates music mm-hmm. and live shows were clearly central to their controversy and their image and their yeah. their anchor point against everything else in the media at the time. Yeah. And it was obviously, presumably, their appeal on the other side of that. Uh, a lot of the band itself weren't just focused on the occult aspect, but the, they just wanted to rock out, but the occult was just something they wore on the front. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of, I've written this down because it, it does remind me of this. I was listening to an interview with Buzz Aldrin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and obviously they were talking about the moon landing, and it kind of like, I got the impression that Buzz really didn't give a fuck about the moon landing. Yeah. He, he cared more about engineering under difficult circumstances than he was actually <laughs> caring about like the widest, the, the wider, the prospects of putting a man on the moon. He was just like, oh, yeah. And, and, Oh, we have so, to fucking. So, like, I had to, oh, I had it was a monkey wrench, and I had to go and fix this fucking thing. But there's no yeah. gravity, so it was a nightmare. So everyone else is like, "Oh my god, we're going to the moon." Buzz, do you want in on this? And he's like, "What are we going in?" Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. This, we, yeah. What are we going in. So that, in, like in you know same... that nerdy mate who will only go somewhere if you go on a steam train because they like steam rather than deltics. Oh god. <laughs> yeah. But in the same sort of capacity, I think this is where Merciful Fate has the angle. The occult yeah. stuff on its own is a gimmick. It's it's just a gimmick. It's just a, a thing. But because the songs do kick tits, yes, it makes like the sum of its parts more of a compelling thing. Yeah, yeah, I get what you mean. It's like would like like coming back to the crew again. Would Motley Crew be Motley Crew if they didn't look like Motley Crew? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're just you know. Yeah. Yeah, if if they were all like brickies from Glasgow, it wouldn't work, would it? But, no, yeah. no. But I think that's like... what Case is looking act, act yeah. for an act. It's like because it says like he's an, he's an opera guy. He's not like a yeah, he's yeah. not a metalist, so he, he must oh, yeah. find the angle. Yeah, yeah. So if he signs, yeah, that makes sense. Signing if you're an opera guy, signing fucking merciful fate. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So where we're at, at Roadrunner making a name for itself, Case has already finally tuned experience in the record industry, being played. In, in an adversarial media environment, in my opinion, helps him identify those kind of investment opportunities in a band. Or to be a little bit more on the nose, he was after bands that your mum and dad don't want you listening to before your mum and dad know that they were even a band. It's that kind. Of, it's that kind of shit. I think that's that's his sort of shtick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He knows what's going to sell. So yeah, yeah. why not? So as well as seeking out more extreme acts of the veil, but at the time. Case operate, um, appeared to adopt a more intimate management style uh, with his acts, quite far removed from the oversaturated helicopter management style that accompanied the disco bubble just a few years prior. So here's King Diamond uh, recounting the run-up to the ink making its way to the dotted line. Mm. I wonder if I got that here. No, I haven't. <laughs> the, day, <laughs> the day before we were to play Ardshock, maybe the first one, I was at the Roadrunner offices and Case was trying, uh, was going, trying to go over the contract with me. Um, he very patiently explained as much as he could to me. I had so many questions about everything. From that day on and for many years, Case was always extremely open and willing to give me his wisdom. I'm eternally grateful to Case for this. He taught me about all uh, all about the business. We agreed to sign the whole thing the next day backstage at Artshock. That's when we officially signed the deal. Mm. So that's just one anecdote, but you'll hear this kind of thing about Case a lot. He seems to really give a fuck about his bands. yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, in, yeah. In, in a similar way, uh, Roadrunner seemed to favor the band's recording preferences uh, oh, with a view yeah. to helping them develop the sound. Yeah. In contrast to Merciful Fate's previous label, Rave On Records. <laughs> Rave On. So this is King again. Uh, on the first mini EP, we had two days to record and mix. 
just the two days. And we had just as many backing vocals and harmony guitars planned as you hear on the Melissa album. But we were told, no, 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 there's no time. Do it now, do it now, do it now. You only have one backing vocal, blah, blah, blah. Get it done, get it done. On some of it, it was hard. It was like, oh, man, we had all this stuff planned out for nothing because we only had time to do certain amounts of things. But then when we finally signed to Roadrunner and got 12 days in the studio to do Melissa, uh, we could suddenly start experimenting with these harmonies and stuff, and then the sound started developing as a result of that. Hmm. So Merciful Face debut Melissa came out on the day before Halloween uh, in 1983 oh, to critical acclaim. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Merciful Fate would, of course, go on to influence the first wave of black metal and the Bay Area thrash movement. Mm -hmm. It seems that they can also continue to be controversial into 1985. Oh, evil is a tune. Evil is a tune, yeah. Oh, God. I, I, I love the fact you brought that picture because I was going to I was gonna talk about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, this this yeah. is irrelevant. So... Yeah. Uh, they also seem to be controversial into 1985. That was the year the band made it onto the Parents Filthy, sorry, Parents Music Resource Center, Filthy 15. A list of songs. Yeah, yeah. Um, a list of songs found to be the most objectionable at the time. Uh, Merciful Fate made it onto number 11 with Into the Coven. I see. Of all those ones that are on there, it's kind of like I get, I get why fuck like a beast. <laughs> <laughs> That's possibly the only one where it's kind of like, you know, oh, which of these songs is a bit wrong? Well, the one called Fuck Like a Beast is not the one we want <laughs> young kids listening to. <laughs> uh, another side note about the recording of Melissa. Um, apparently, uh, they recorded a cover of Led Zeppelin's Immigrant Song for the album, which was left on the cutting room floor. And I can't find it anywhere. So if anyone knows... Dude, amazing. Yeah, man, that'd be badass. Imagine King Diamond doing the... Exactly. exactly. Anyway, so for me, 1983 is the year. That's the pivotal year Case took Roadrunner on its first steps away from purely distributing obscure music to the obscure masses of, road, uh, of, of Europe and towards yeah. carving its own defamatory insults into the side of the toilet cubicle at your local fucking school. Yeah. That's where it is now. Yeah. So at this point, I'm, I'm now going to take a quick step back. Right, so we all know by at this point, yeah, uh, metal had been around for some form or another for about thirteen years. Obviously, start let, let's call it Sabbath, fucking Paranoid, or whatever, or Black Sabbath. Black even Sabbath. Black Sabbath, <clears throat> Black Sabbath is the is the generally accepted start there. Yeah, yeah, but from what I can see, the biggest acts of the seventies weren't being pushed by metal labels; they were being tacked onto massive conglomerates. So I've done a list. Mm. Would you believe it? I've done a fucking list. Where's the list? Where's the list going to appear from, Jim? Boom. <laughs> So, Priest... Oh, I've got a black box now. Oh, have you? Yeah. Shit. <laughs> That's going to need Skype. It's fine. You'll uh, The the other recording device will be recording the full screen. All right. But I'll, oh. I'm going to read them out anyway for the benefit of the podcast listeners. All right, cool. Okay, so Priest, yeah? Priest mm. assigned to Columbia. Mm. Uh, they're actually a f across a few that decade, but the big one's Columbia. Who are their label mates? It's Paul Simon and Billy Joel, David Allen Coe, Bob Dylan, Aerosmith, ELO, Kenny fucking Loggins. Then we're on to Zeppelin, signed to Atlantic. Their mm. label mates, Aretha Franklin, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Allman Brothers, yes, Otis Redding, Buffalo Springfield, Maiden, signed to EMI, label mm. mates with Queen, Don McLean, Hot Chocolate, Stevie Wonder, Scorpions, RCA, um, label mates with Bowie, Elvis, Chet Atkins, and finally Sabbath, label Vertigo, mm. label mates with Status Quo, Thin Lizzy, Dire Straits, Nazareth. You see my point, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think I picked the heavier ones of that decade, but obviously yeah, I've yeah. someone call me a fucking fake metalhead for adding the Scorpions in there, but fuck you, I don't care. Oh. 
scorpions my comparison. Anyone who says anyone who says different, uh, fuck it, yeah. If scorpions aren't metal, why did the headline Bloodstock last year? <laughs> I think uh, like um, they were considered like cutting edge fucking metal at the time as well, like in the late seventies. Yeah. Anyway. By comparison, in the short years following Melissa, Merciful Fate will be calling U.S. Thrashers Carnivore and Whiplash, Swedish Outfit Silver Mountain, and not um, sorry, New Wave of rich heavy metal bands Avenger and Spartan Warrior yeah. uh, as their label mates. As we'll learn soon enough, this roster will expand dramatically. Yes, Carnivore. Uh, do like a bit of Carnivore. Yep, come to Carnivore. Yeah. All oh, right. Cool. Oh, we yep. talk about Carnivore. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Additionally, during this time, Roadrunner hadn't given up on its licensing and distribution arm. Uh, so conti- we continue to see early releases from Metallica, Slayer, Anthrax, Venom, Raven, and Witchfind all over Europe, which you'll see popped around on this timeline. Mm-hmm. So was Roadrunner breaking new ground by trending towards signing exclusively metal acts? No. No. So around the same time, we've got other me- uh, metal labels that have popped up. And I've got a oh, massive fuck-off list. I can't wait for these to pop up. Yeah, Metal Blade, Megaforce, RCA Records, Combat Records, Earache, Dr. Dream Records on West Coast, Ecstasy Records in Japan, Fringe Product, um, Intense Records, uh, Leather Records was a Motley Crue's own label, Mausoleum Records. Leather Records, because there's lots of in that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Music for Nations, Neat Records, as we've already discussed, New Renaissance, Noise Records, uh, Nuclear Blast and Peaceful were 987, so I'm not really considering them as part of this. SPV are still around fucking massive label um so there's a fucking shit ton of like yeah. hard rock and metal labels I at this know, time i didn't know metal blade and earache were that far back um metal blade 82 earache was 86 oh no 85 so i was stretching a bit still i didn't think i thought earache were yeah i thought they were like well 90s but so yeah. i cherry picked some of those above yeah and i made another table that's not showing up on my screen but what no it? but one what it's uh showing is uh, Roadrunner, Metal Blade, Megaforce, Combat, Mausoleum, Neat, Music First Nations, and SPV, and the number of releases that they put out between 1981 and 1985. Mm. And I'm not being picky here. This is like reissues, any licensed distributions, anything that might make the label some money. Mm. So Roadrunner had basically fucking swamped all the competition. Mm. Even Metal Blade's first album, uh, first release came out in 1982, and there were only six. That year, Roadrunner, as we said, came out with 34. Uh, Neat Records are the only ones that... Uh, be, have them beat on some years because they started in 78 mm. so they've got more sort of humility records coming out but really by the time we hit 1984 1985 um, Roadrunner are coming out with 114 and 142 releases and the only thing that's competing with them is Mausoleum with 73 mm. and 36 and yeah. Combat Records also based in New York um, they had 80 records out in 1985 basically this is where Roadrunner's got the edge yeah it's got the metabolic rate of fucking Usain Bolt, banging yeah, shit to market. Yeah. <clears throat> so while they were hardly breaking new ground when it comes to branding themselves as the metal label, it can't be denied that they were, you know, while being a small independent outfit in 1985, they were outpacing their contemporaries by a considerable fucking margin. Of course, I can't, I can't qualify that as like an advantage because they could just be pumping out records and not selling them. Yeah, true. But they're making shit that sells, obviously, aren't they? Yeah, the, well, they're making shit that sells as history is foretold. Well, not foretold, yeah. but as history has told us. Oh, no. Um, yeah, and, and again, just to hit on to what they're leaning on, of 1984's 114 releases, 107 are labelled as hard rock and metal. Similarly, in 1985, 142 releases, 135 are considered hard rock and metal. So we've gone from, like, new wave synth, you know, electronic yeah. shit, 
taken up about maybe half, maybe a bit more of the mantle. Now it's mostly, vast majority is hard rock and metal. Mm. So, um, yeah, I'm curious to see if there's anything out there these days um, with a roster of artists that are putting out, like, a record a fucking week. You know what I mean? Is there any label out there now that's banging out a record a week, either, you know, in distribution or with actual artists in the same way that Roadrunner were? I don't know, man, because the thing now, it's if you're wanting to put out a record a week, you can do. You just, like, you know, get your get your grand car band together and then bang it on Bandcamp, don't you? You don't need to label it if you... This is the thing. You can do that schedule without labeling it, can't you? So this is the this is what this is the shit I fucking love. Like going into into the <laughs> detail, like what's the actual motivation of a label and what do they actually fucking do? Yeah. And that's what's gonna be the next one because the next one deals with the fucking yeah. I'll, we'll get onto it. Yeah. Okay. Initially, I struggled to speculate on what I, I could attribute Roadrunner's frantic release schedule um, <clears throat> and what Case was looking for when signing an artist. So as I understand it, Case is an opera guy with mm. and a history with metal um, isn't one hundred percent verified. You know, with mm. with the A and R for Sabbath thing, I don't know. I don't know what his actual experience is with metal. But yeah. then I remembered that um, we're only talking about Roadrunner's like first three years. Mm. But by the time Melissa's out, by King, like um, Merciful Fate, we're yeah. seventeen years at the very least into Case's career. Yeah, seventeen okay. fucking years he's been at it. Yeah. If we assume that the Q sixty five anecdote from earlier um, yeah. took place during his first year at work. Which can't mm. be fucking right. He must have been at this for fucking it. anyway. As for his fandom of the opera, that didn't seem to matter, right? So Brian Slagle, the opera. As, <laughs> do you like that? I like that, yeah. Um, <laughs> as Brian Slagle of Metal Blade noted in the Bloody Reign of Slayer, upon forming a relationship with Case over possible overseas distribution arrangements in 1983, Case got Slayer's music and he liked it, says Slagle. In fact, I took Case to see Slayer when he was in LA. It was a terrible venue, but Case said, oh, I totally get it. So I think the most operative term there is I get it. It didn't seem mm. it seems that mm. Case doesn't need to have been part of the tape trading scene or played in a metal band to understand yeah. the appeal of certain bands. Yeah. Um as I mentioned earlier, that seems to be what he found in Merciful Fate, the in- yeah. intentional antagonism King brought to the stage through his occult yeah. artifacts yeah. and the yeah. lyrical content was certainly an angle that Case could exploit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To our benefit as metalheads. Yeah. Right, so where are we? 1984, 1984, Carnivore, motherfucker. Carnivore. Gotta Yeah. 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 Right, so I really wanted to find some more substantial information on how the New York crossover thrash band Carnivore got signed. Fuck you. But at the time... Thermonuclear warrior fucking tune. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But at the time of writing, all I can find is the below. Um, I tried to reach out to the fucking drummer on Facebook (laughs) to see if he could remember. (laughs) He did not get back. So... If you're a, a Carnivore fan, yes. watching a 45-minute interview with a drunk Pete Steele might be a bit of a laugh. When you're trying to find specific information, it is a fucking slog. <laughs> so I can only find the below quote, tucked inside a 45-minute drunk interview in which Pete Steele frequently berates the interviewer for minor social slights. <laughs> what, like, oh, is this what I have to watch? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, I'll, I'll, oh. I'll send you the, I'll send you the link. All right, nice. Well, that'll be a bedtime viewing. So, yeah, Carl, come and watch Pete. You got, they'll get fucking anywhere with it. It's fucking. Anyway, when I signed to, with Carnivore to the label, the deal was in fact horrible. It was a conflict of interest because I was young and in, in ignorant and uncircumcised at the time. The record company. <laughs> 
the record company recommended that we use their lawyer, which we of course did. So he's like, everything in here is cool. Of course it was fucking cool. So my attitude was, well, I don't want to be some fucking rock and roller because that wasn't my ambition. I was a sanitation worker. So whether I was fucking picking up garbage or writing it, it's the same thing. So he kind of trails off. But his point being is we signed Carnivore to the label and it wasn't a great deal and he feels like he got fucked over. We'll talk about that in the next one. Yeah. So the rather slurred details around the Carnivore deal and its apparent horribleness is important. Yeah. Um, and we'll get into the nuances of that in the next chapter of this, this fucking shit show. Yeah, awesome. But I think it's totally worth mentioning uh, this band in light of the previous comment about Case, finding an angle. Because yeah. especially as metal was the musical antagonist to the mainstream playlists of the day. Yeah. Um, and because Carnivore is, Carnivore is the start of like the 20-year relationship with Pete Steele yeah. for Typo. Um, so yeah. Carnivore was the brainchild of Peter who had become who had become to be the same brain parent as the other brainchild Typo. As a personality, Pete was famously cynical, imposing, and carried a, a cutting, dark sense of humor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, you, and you get that from Carnivore. It's, it's uh, dude, I just, oh, I forget which fucking, yeah, of course, that's Pete Steele and fucking Carnivore. Yeah, uh, just that, just that bit where it's just, uh, it's, <laughs> what's that? If you cannot eat it, oh fuck it, you must kill it. <laughs> As described by uh, drummer Louis Beato, um, Carnival was the Howard Stern of music. We were pushing the envelope constantly. Yeah. Uh, it was always about being extreme. We were trying to present this heavy, large, barbaric vibe, and everything surrounded that. We were very influenced by the movie Road Warrior. Yeah, we were a rogue band of scavengers looking for anything and looking for anything and taking it. But as far as any challenges, we didn't care. I don't think the lyrics had any effect they had until Peter first went to Europe with Typo with Carnival lyrics. I think he's referring to like a few like, like Christ, you know, some Christians boycotted a few of their shows and a few yeah. shows like the riots because of of previous Carnival lyrics. Anyway, yeah. he was outlaw number one. Uh, of course, there were people here in our city, New York City, that were offended, but at the same time, we were building a strong underground following, and that's what we wanted. But honestly, we didn't care if people were offended. So with song titles such as Male Supremacy, Angry Neurotic Catholics, Race War, Jesus Hitler, and, Jesus a, proudly, yeah, and, a, proudly, <laughs> and a proudly resonant declaration of Peter's dining preferences in the opening track to their self-titled album, Carnivore seemed an appropriate horse for Case to back, as it would be a gamble that paid off in the two, week, uh, two decades to follow. Yeah. Okay, so we're moving on now. Yeah, but uh, kind of our shit art. If you, if if you're a fan of like decent music, but if you've got a sick sense of humour and you like and you want like gua that's a bit more over the edge than gua, listen to Carnival. It's fucking brilliant. <clears throat> it sound, you know what I, I put it on the other day? Sounds amazing, as in like production value. It really, really sounds great still today. Oh, it's good driving music, man. Definitely, definitely. Anyway, yeah, driving music. The other milestones for Roadrunner in this time include the signing of its the first female-fronted metal band, Jade, in 1984. Mm. Um, Lita Ford doesn't count because she's a solo act. All right, okay. That's what I'm saying, anyway. Um, okay. 1985 would also see the birth of King Diamond, oh. uh, rising from the ashes of Merciful Fate, who broke up citing created differences after releasing Don't Break the Oath in 1984. <clears throat> According to the late bassist for the band, Timmy Hansen, the initial Merciful Fate deal with Roadrunner wasn't great, and Kin went to negotiate with Case on the matter. Case insisted the only way to broker a better financial arrangement for the band was to change the band's name. Uh, given that Merciful Fate was already dead, or effectively dead at that point, King Diamond was born under this new arrangement. 1985 would also see the only American hire of Roadrunner at the time, Holly Lane. Mm. Uh, there she is. Holly Lane, there she is. <clears throat> 
Yeah. Which one is? Is she the one giving the finger? Is that? Is I think that she's. I think she's far left. Oh, well, that's, uh, all right. Yeah. Holly was tasked with launching Roadrunner's U.S. operations. The interesting tidbit about this was that the company is not allowed to operate under the name Roadrunner uh, for some years due to an IP conflict with the Warner Brothers cartoon character. Obviously. There you go. To evade any escalation, Roadrunner was known as Road Racer. Um, in the U.S. since December 10th, 1984, and you can see the Roadrunner, Road Racer, um, Logo in the background there. I've got it attached to one of cool. these. Cool, but... I'm looking thing in. Uh, oh no, no, it's got a bit of a weird smile. Okay, wherever. There we go. Road Racer Records. Mm-hmm. All right, it's the same thing. It's like the same font and shit. Just, just totally. Yeah, yeah. Running, there's, some, yeah. there's some other. There's some other versions where there's like a, a panther running the over some shit. In the background, that's cool. I like that. Yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So under Holly's leadership, like the U.S. Crap American high school logo. Yeah. <laughs> so under Holly's leadership, the U.S. office for Roadrunner would open in New York City. In uh, the autumn of 1986. Mm. Would you like to know where? Of course I fucking would, Jim. <laughs> of course I would. I, there's about three different uh, recorded um, offices for Roadrunner um, in New York City. There's one here, and there's like three on, on Broadway, but I can't tell right. you when all these were. Right. So that's problematic. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> it, now, in 1986, let's look at Jim's presentation of buildings where they used to be record labels. <laughs> in 1986, um, by the way, we're on the last five minutes, so we should be all right. Cool, man. Cool. Um, in 1986, Holly Inc. to distribution deal with Important Records Distribution, parent company to the aforementioned Roadrunner Rivals Combat Records, and launched three imprints, the heavy metal Road Racer, as we've already seen, uh, alternative music imprint Emerjo, uh. Uh, featuring the flesh tones and hardcore hawker so basically what the idea is you have the label and then you have different kind of almost sub labels like a different sort of label under that and obviously they're trying to compartmentalize different genres like you got your hardcore in hawker and, and all that stuff so people hopefully with that scene will recognize hawker more than they'd recognize roadrunner but also i guess they kind of like mitigate any risk if they put out a shit album because maybe roadrunner wouldn't be the the wouldn't get the bad rap for it. It'll be Hawker, I guess. Uh, right. Each imprint would see a release that year. Road Racer being uh, King Diamond's Abigail. Mm. Where have I got that? There we go. <clears throat> uh, da, da, da. Selling a... Yeah, yeah. So Abigail would be Roadrunner's first Billboard Top 200, selling mm. 175k in units, which is fucking massive. Mm. Uh, Emerjo would release the Flesh Tones album, uh, Flesh Tones vs. Reality, and Hawker would release Token Entries, Jaybird, the following year. Mm. This is the thing. All of Holly's first year releases all charted in the Billboard Top 200. Mm. So every time Holly's touching something, it, she's, she's doing, you know, she... The woman she with the golden naked. touch. Yeah. Yeah. A pre, a, a, apparently, yeah. So Abigail in particular was not was a, a milestone not only because of the amount of units sold but because it claims to be the first horror story concept album. <clears throat> ah. uh, King says you can say Alice Cooper's Welcome to My Nightmare takes that mantle, but it's not a horror story. Explains yeah. King. Others have done concept albums, The Who and many others, but never a horror story like this. I'm pretty sure as a first because at the time it was so new, it was automatically going to have a heavy impact. So I guess Case would like that being an opera guy. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you reckon? We're seven years in now. Yeah, somebody years in, yeah. Cool. Roadrunner are incubating their own ta- uh, talent who are placing in the Billboard Top 100, or 200. Yeah. So that's fucking massive. And at the same time, Rain and Blood's happening. 
Yes. Astro Puppets is out. Yes. So, um, closing remarks, right? So, Holly Lane, person responsible for all this shit, <clears throat> or at least everything in the U.S. operations side of things, uh, yep. sadly passed away a couple of months ago in June. Oh, uh, so, yeah. yeah, man, this is this is a yeah. I, surprised me as well when looking into this so yeah. i thought i'd end on a letter of recommendation for her written by a retired attorney jules i kurtz in 1985 case west uh, whoops shit just knocked an amp over when i'm putting my feet up <laughs> getting too comfortable in 1985 fucking case problems there fucking rocker problems yeah in 1985 case wessels my clients opened up roadrunner records incorporated I recommended Holly Lane to Case. She was interviewed and hired as Chief Operating Officer. During her tenure at Roadrunner, Holly was always the first one in the office every morning and the person who turned off all the lights in the evening. From nothing, Holly created a well-functioning company and laid the base for what is today is, uh, is arguably the leading independent record label in the world, operating in the area of heavy metal and hard rock. Holly continued to circulate in the music industries and she continued to build up a repertoire of people she knew in all areas of the music record business. So Holly was also directly responsible for launching the career of the George Lucas of Metal, mm. who was at this time working at Shatter Records just down the road as a college radio promoter for paychecks that kept fucking bouncing. <laughs> More on that next time. So this is why I wanted to meet, this is why there was a hard left turn towards Holly because she's directly responsible for the hiring of this guy who has oh. pretty much shaped every, I mean, I'm on about Case, right? Case is obviously yeah, the foundation yeah. of this stuff, but this next guy I'm going to talk about is like, yeah. he shaped absolutely fucking everything we know. Yeah, Especially I, our I, generation. Yeah, I think I know who you're going to talk about, but I won't spoil it for everyone who, who doesn't know. So. Cheers. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so these start. are my pine questions, right? Yeah. What's the actual story of Carnivore being signed? Yeah. And the reason I like that story, because I know there's loads of bands who have fallen by the wayside, right? But most will think Carnivore have like strong eccentric people involved. Yes. And at the time that was remarkable and then it gets more common as you move forward. Yeah. So I want to know why Case plucked them from the unwashed masses. Yeah. Uh, two, what are the stories of all the bands we've never heard of? I suspect that, um, as I say, Neat Records and Roadrunner had a bit of a relationship and they'd kind of like swap bands over. Yeah, yeah, yeah possibly, because yeah. Because Roadrunner have a few northeastern new wave of British heavy metal yeah. people signed to them and it's like, well, that's... Didn't yeah. Neat pass them up? I don't know. Yeah. Um, was Case actually Sabbath A and R guy? What? That is the big question. That is That's one big point. question. And okay. I want to know what the feeling was on the ground, right? When you see all this shit is happening in the background. Yeah. Like fucking deaths happening, Master of Purpose is out. Yeah. yeah fucking yeah. Sepultura is making waves. Yeah. Did the people in Roadrunner did they feel like they were being outdone? Did they feel like, oh shit? People have more of a handle on this than us, or what? Yeah, but then what you've got to think about is, yeah, I, yeah, I suppose Combat's like a metal label, isn't it? But you look at the others, they're not pure metal labels, are they? So it might be kind of like, okay, they've got one or two, but we're in this for the long game. We've got so many. Most are. The ones that I mentioned are, I mean, Def Jam aren't, obviously. Def Jam aren't, no. Electro aren't. No, Electro aren't, but... Uh, all the others are right. Okay, so the so the most of the others. I mean, I mean, yeah. in in the context of what I was talking about, in terms of were they unique? They certainly fucking weren't. I mean, yeah. in in what you're seeing on the screen, it's effectively just things that are happening in metal as a scene, as opposed to metal as a business. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So we'll pick this up next time then. So we will leave on a very quick. What the fuck have you been playing at? This. <laughs> Obviously, obviously literally that that's literally been it i've barely i've made some sushi tonight and that's the most remarkable thing i've done that is in that is not wow. this um do you want to know what i've been playing at jim yep 
Um, I've finished Bernard Cornwell's Waterloo, and it turns out we won. No fucking way. <laughs> Did you survive? Yeah, yeah, it was good. I've finished Bernard Cornwell's Waterloo, so now I've um, started reading uh, Heinz Guderian's Panzer Leader, which is his account of uh, World War Two and uh, how he basically called Hitler a fucking useless twat for his entire career. Um, Fantastic. It's a good film, but the funniest thing about that book is... Um, <laughs> the, the the book properly starts in 19, 1922 when Heinz Guderian was put in charge of... Uh, like figuring out how to make tanks work and it meant that his sort of like life's passion and everything. Do you yeah, want yeah. to know how many pages of his own book that he has written are dedicated to his life before 1922? Bearing in mind he was in World War One. <laughs> how many pages do you think he developed to his life before 1922? That's probably the amount of um, time I devoted to Case Wessels before 1983, which would be two pages. Two pages exactly, Jim. Fucking yes. <laughs> It's kind of like, I was born, I had a brother, I was in World War II. Anyway, thanks. <laughs> awesome. Awesome, yes. Um, but yeah, I'll hopefully I'll hopefully pick this up again for the next chapter. I'm hoping to have it done next week, but it's, yeah. this this is the tough one because there's there's no information here. I've had to string yeah. this together, whereas everything after this is a lot better recorded because there's a lot more people involved. All right, cool. But if if not, man, we can we can easily come up with a topic. We could do... We, actually, do you want to... Roadrunner, if you've got it. If not, we'll do uh, bands that you've seen lots of times accidentally. Works for me. Yep. Yeah. All right, cool, man. I'll, I'll let you know on Friday if it's doable or not. No, if it's doable, fine. we crack on. If yeah. it's not, we don't. I'll, I'll get thinking at the weekend if it's not there. All right, cool. So, uh, yeah, so... Uh, follow us on all the bullshit that Jim is in charge of. Uh, Twitter. Temple of Blair. B-L-E-H. Really, uh, Robert Jet like Boba Fett. I'm not on Twitter. If I can be asked at some point in the next month or two, I might start an Instagram page. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I am busting for a piss and I have shit to do. So that is going to be good bleh from me. That's good bleh from me. We'll see you motherfuckers next week. Woo! All right, a bit, pal. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs>